Good morning, Redemption. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here. Today, our passage is coming from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word for us today. Father, we truly trust that this is your word for us today. We ask that you would give us minds and hearts and ears to receive it, uh, to be shaped by it and to honor and glorify you as we seek to live it out and obey it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to picture yourself on an ancient battlefield, if you can. Um, Dirty, sweaty, with loud crashes, screaming, and the metallic clang of swords all around you. Uh, You are at war for your kingdom and it is terrifying. The stakes are high. Your opponents are right there in front of you, and they literally want to destroy you. Not necessarily the kind of situation you might think of experiencing joy, right? If you had time even to think about it in that moment, I have to imagine, I just wonder if these people who did this, like they're out there, they're fighting for their life, and in their mind they're kind of thinking like, is this really worth it? right? I could easily lose my life. And then even if we win this battle, even if we win this war, I I won't enjoy the benefits of it at all. And and then of course, there's that whole possibility that we may not win this battle or this war. And and then even if I do survive, I I might be someone's slave, right? It's, It's not hard to imagine struggling with doubt in this scenario. Maybe even contemplating sort of making a run for it, right? Skip all this, right? I, I will tell whoever I have to tell, whatever I have to tell them, but I am, I'm staying alive. I'm, I'm running. Many have done it. But then imagine a message is proclaimed. Maybe a, a horn is sounded over the battlefield and someone reports and, and, and sort of relays a gospel of sorts, a good news announcement from the king. Friends, we've, we've taken the capital city Friends, our king is seated on the throne. Friends, we have won the war. Mid-battle, you're still fighting. How would that good news change your perspective about the conflict you were engaged in in that moment? What would it look like to engage in that battle in a manner that was worthy of that gospel? This is more or less the spiritual picture Paul paints for us here at the end of Philippians 1. 
Last week, he brought us into this sort of secret of his as to how he endures suffering with joy. And if you remember, the secret was that Christ's life mattered more to Paul than even his own. So therefore, no matter how bad it went for his life, he was able to press on in joy. And toward the end of that reflection of his, he, you remember, he kind of waffled back and forth between these two options. He said, he says, you know, I don't know. Do I want to depart and be with Christ? Do I want to remain in the flesh? You know, I don't know. I'm hard-pressed between the two. And what he concluded was that it was more necessary uh, for him to remain in the flesh for the sake of this church in Philippi. And so he planned to endure persecution, to get out of prison, and to visit them in person at some point. If you look with me back at verse 25, please. Uh, Convinced of this, Paul wrote, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul is planning to keep living. Uh, Paul is planning even to visit them and come in, in the future. But then here in verse 27, he shifts his focus to the life of this church, their life together in Philippi as a fellowship. And he writes only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you read that one sentence out of context, I have to imagine, and part of me even hopes, uh, you might be a little bit confused by it. Uh, because we know this gospel justifies sinful people by grace alone, through faith alone. We, we regularly emphasize That this is not something we strive to be worthy of. The whole point is we recognize we're not worthy and we rely on Christ, right? This is where we have to be careful not to impose our systems onto Scripture, even good ones. Clearly, when Paul says gospel here, he is not just talking about a message that saves individuals when they believe in it. It's not just talking about that, and we can be sure of it because when he does talk very clearly about that message of individuals being saved elsewhere, he's very clear. They are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so when Paul says gospel here, we should not just think about how to be saved. Instead, we should envision the formerly crucified, now exalted King Jesus ruling over all of creation up there in heaven. This gospel, again, it's, it's the good news that King Jesus up there is in charge down here, no matter how bad it gets down here. This is why Paul's already said the Philippians were partners with him in that gospel, right, as, as citizens of this heavenly, heavenly kingdom. And, and here he's telling them to live in a manner that is worthy of that gospel. In other words, he's saying, make sure you conduct your life together as a church as if Jesus really has risen from the dead. As if he really has ascended to heaven, where he now reigns over all up there. He's saying, live together now as if Jesus really is in charge of all creation, as if he really does have all authority in heaven and on earth, and as if we really are citizens of his kingdom in heaven, more so than citizens of any other group down here on earth. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not just to live a morally upright life yourself, but to live together as a church, pressing on in unity, even through trials. 
It means engaging in this conflict we're all in together as if the king we're all fighting for has actually already won the battle. So with that in mind, in these verses, Paul reminds the Philippians, first, how their gospel-worthy life should work, and then second, why their gospel-worthy life really mattered. And so first, let's consider how our gospel-worthy life should work. Look with me at verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of what you're sta- uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He is saying, in other words, listen, I hope to come and see you guys, as we covered. I trust that I will, but here's the report I expect to hear. In the meantime, if you are continuing to press on together in this gospel-worthy upward life. So here's what our gospel-worthy life should look like. Here's how it works. According to Paul, we're going to break this into three parts. First, it looks like standing firm in one spirit with one mind. This first call to stand firm, it's a call to resolute commitment, To stand firm means to plant your feet firmly on the ground and to not let them be moved, no matter what. The simple fact that we are called to stand firm also suggests there will be many temptations, right, to run or to fall or to give ground, to do anything but stand firm. There's plenty of temptations, particularly in context as a result of things like Paul's imprisonment and opposition and persecution, Just go back to that mental picture of, again, mid-battle with your life on the line, right? A lot of temptations to run, to fall. It's terrifying, right? Paul's saying, listen, that's fine, but make up your mind not to run. Plant your feet firmly. Be resolute. And notice what follows also makes it very clear. This gospel-worthy life is corporate, You cannot live this gospel-worthy life by yourself. We okay? You cannot live this gospel-worthy life by yourself. Um, I I have been criticized at times for my teaching on the church, uh, sometimes directly, uh, because some feel I emphasize the church more than the gospel, which I don't believe is true. I, if, if that were true, it would be a huge problem for, to me. Um, but I certainly do emphasize the church more than some would expect, uh, and in ways maybe they're not used to. And, and here is yet another New Testament text that should help us understand why that is. You can see clearly, according to Paul, it's not as if the church is somehow some kind of distraction from the gospel. The church is the result of the gospel, <laughs> And to live in a gospel-worthy way, we actually need a local church to stand firm with. This is just how the New Testament consistently talks about the gospel, the church, and the relationship between the two. Paul does not simply say stand firm. He says stand firm in one spirit, with one mind. And that is quite literally here in context what it means. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, he's saying, don't just take a stand on your own, right? Anybody can do that. 
Don't just insist on the instincts and inclinations of your spirit. Don't, don't just rely on whatever it is that you think with your mind. No, stand firm together as a church as if all of you together have the same spirit and the same mind. This is the first mark of a gospel-worthy life, standing firm as a church in one spirit with one mind. Next, our gospel-worthy life also involves, number two, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, by contrast, this part is, is much more active, isn't it? Uh, it's not just that we're to stand still together in this resolute way. We're also called to strive together, side by side, which is to work and to move together, almost in battle, toward a specific goal, which, as Paul says here, is the faith of the gospel, which is interesting. I want you to notice uh, we are not called to strive side by side toward some vision or strategy. Uh, we are not called to strive side by side towards organizational success or greater influence in the culture. My goodness, Paul's writing this from prison. <laughs> These churches had no hope of any of those things. So instead, the thing we're called to strive together towards is faith. We are to strive together side by side toward the faith of the gospel. And by the way, here, here's where Paul references the thing that does lead to the, to the redemption of individuals, right? Their faith. Uh, I, I can't have faith for any one of you. That's something I have to do in my own heart is to have faith by God's grace. But we can strive side by side to have more faith together. That we can do. And this is the idea. To the extent that we strive toward this trust, this faith, this confidence in the Lord Jesus together, our church will live together in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And, and, and to the extent that we sort of wander off on our own and stop striving together towards this kind of gospel faith, well, then the life of our church will actually deteriorate and become altogether unworthy of the gospel. And so we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. We are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And finally, our gospel-worthy life involves, number three, not being frightened in anything by our opponents. Uh, this gives us a hint, I think, as to why the Philippians may have been tempted not to stand firm in one spirit or mind. It's because some of them were afraid of their opponents. Uh, we talked last week about who Paul's opponents likely were, but notice Paul doesn't refer to these men here as, as his opponents. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents, the, you guys, the Philippians. And it seems like by saying this, he's re he really is trying to get something across. He's saying, guys, you understand, my imprisonment does matter for you too. When the powers that be in prison me and they oppose and persecute my ministry, they are opposing and persecuting the, the church of Jesus Christ, and, and that's... That's you guys. Seems like Paul may have been sensing a little bit of distance growing between himself and this church. Like certain members were sort of keeping him at arm's length so as not to be associated with him. Chances are out of fear that the persecution he was facing might come to be persecution that they had to face. 
which is understandable. But with these words, Paul's trying to remind them, which he does next, very explicitly. Brothers, my imprisonment is your imprisonment. My opponents are your opponents. Next, he's going to say, you guys are engaged in the same conflict that I'm engaged in. Right? Is kind of the idea. In other words, don't let fear of these opponents lure you away from this upward, gospel-worthy life together. This is the idea. Stand firm. Keep striving side by side with one another, with me. This is how our gospel-worthy life together should work. And next, Paul explains why this gospel-worthy life of ours really matters. Why it really matters. By this, when he says this, midway through verse 28, if you look with me at 28, by this, Paul is referring to everything we just covered, <laughs> okay? He's saying this, namely you guys persevering with joy in the gospel-worthy upward life, that right there is a clear sign to them, our opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is Carl's call to worship. We're in a battle we can't win. He can. We rely on him. And as we do, it's a clear statement. Here again, Paul is framing up his suffering in terms of a cosmic spiritual war. We've been talking about this the last couple weeks. He's saying, when you guys keep pressing on in this upward life, rejoicing with me even when I'm persecuted, that's how the world knows that God is winning this war. Amen. He's a sure sign to our opponents. Oh, boy, we can't even defeat these people by throwing them in prison. Even when we do, they're not afraid of us. They keep living together. They keep standing firm. They keep striving side by side. And they even do it with joy somehow. Right? What, like, what are we supposed to do with that? When Christians endure opposition from this world with joy, standing firm, striving side by side together, friends, listen, it gives people the impression, wait a minute, maybe this gospel they believe in is actually true. Maybe we are all under their God's judgment. Maybe they are being saved from his wrath. And maybe this Jesus they worship really is the king of all creation. Maybe he even has authority over, over me, over my life. Now, with all that in mind, hopefully we can see and start to see how this suffering they faced really actually was, as Paul said. It, it's really a good strategic move <laughs> in this cosmic war that we're engaged in, which is exactly what Paul argues next. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In other words, if we're under the impression that we just have to believe in this gospel without actually suffering as for this king, together, like Paul, like the Philippians, we, uh, if we think that this is what God really wants for us in our life together here on earth, I, I have to tell you, according to Paul, uh, we may have another thing coming. Paul is saying, no, 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 not only do you have to suffer for Christ like me, but you guys, God has is, is granted you this suffering. We are lucky we get to share in this suffering of Christ in this way. And then he sort of tacks on this phrase, engaged, he says, in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still 
have. So if, if you want to read about Paul's first trip, actually, to Philippi when he started this church, you can do that in Acts chapter 16. Uh, in Acts 16, you'll read about the story of him first sharing the gospel there. And in Acts 16, you'll also read that Paul was thrown in prison there, in Philippi. This is not his first rodeo, right? And, and, and there's actually this famous story in Acts 16 about the Philippian jailer. You might remember this story. Uh, if you are familiar with the story of the Philippian jailer, just to put this into perspective, chances are that guy is probably part of this church that he's writing this letter to. This is almost certainly what Paul's referring to when he talks about the conflict that the Philippians saw he had back then and now heard he still has now, why they sent their pastor to encourage him. By appealing back to how the church began when Paul was thrown in prison there in Philippi, Paul is trying to remind them again, this is not just my conflict, you guys. This is our conflict. And by pressing on in the gospel-worthy life together, you guys can gain ground in this cosmic war. By suffering alongside of me, you can actually contribute to the fight. This is really the whole point of the passage today, I'm convinced. This is the claim that Paul is trying to make. He is motivating the Philippians to press on with him. He's saying, guys, don't, don't, don't run now. And here's why. Because God uses our earthly suffering to advance his heavenly purposes. This is why it's so important for us to press on together when we suffer and face opposition. Because this is how this whole cosmic war works. It's how the conflict is won. It's won through suffering. Rather than always resisting or running from persecution or opposition, we, we rejoice in it together because the crucified king we worship really is in charge. No matter what they threaten to do to us down here. And hey, didn't they actually crucify him at one point? How'd that go? Did that work? Did that stop the mission? No, it, it was the, the flame that lit the whole thing ablaze. Because God uses our earthly suffering to advance his heavenly purposes. Now, before we dive into application, I think it's helpful for us to pause and just consider what kind of suffering is Paul talking about here so that we can really apply this passage responsibly, okay? Because on one hand, uh, we don't want this passage uh, to apply. We don't want to apply this to any kind of suffering. We really don't. Uh, because Paul is clearly talking about a particular kind of suffering, namely suffering for the sake of Christ. Uh, therefore, uh, suffering through money problems, for example, because we've been unwise with our finances, or, or, or through marital conflict because we've been sinning against our spouse, this is not the kind of suffering God uses to advance his heavenly purposes. Uh, not all forms of suffering are equally relevant to our passage in the same way. On the other hand, we also don't want to read this as if we have to be thrown in prison in order for it to mean anything for us, right? Uh, as one scholar writes, I really appreciated this. He says, for the person whose life is committed in its totality to the service of Christ, every affliction and every frustration becomes an obstacle to fulfilling the goal of serving Christ. Does that make sense? I think it's a helpful perspective uh, in short, I, we might want to think of this in terms of a suffering target here. Are we on target or not is the question. Direct and overt persecution would be something like a bullseye. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. It's exactly what he experienced. 
but more indirect suffering that does impact the life of our church or our Christian walk, for instance, it may not be a bullseye, but it's still at least on the target. Does that make sense? Uh, It may be more akin, for instance, to the Philippians' suffering, for instance, because they were not imprisoned themselves either yet. All that to say, when we talk about suffering, when you talk about this in your small groups this week, let's stick to the suffering that either comes as a result of our commitment to King Jesus and his gospel, or suffering that directly impacts our commitment to King Jesus and his gospel. And then just one last uh, qualification. Again, by God's grace, we, we don't face the kind of direct persecution that Paul faced here. That's true, and we should thank God for it. But again, let's not tune out the passage uh, as though it doesn't have anything for us to gain from it. Uh, More so than most sermons, and maybe even series, uh, this one may be one we need to tuck away for the day when persecution comes. Uh, If we internalize this passage, uh, at the very least, we should not be surprised when that day comes or afraid. That's certainly one application. Uh, And so let's also pray that God would use these verses here to prepare us this morning for the day that that may come. That in mind, let's get back to that battlefield. The gospel has rung out. You're still swinging that sword. And I want to consider this question with you. Why should we press on when we are suffering opposition? Why should we press on? I can see at least three reasons in our passage today. And the first one is this. Because it is God who appoints and uses our suffering. I'm going to say that again. It is God who appoints and uses our suffering. This passage really has a way of stretching our views on both God and the world. It really does. For instance, do we really believe in a totally sovereign God who grants our suffering for the sake of Christ? in this cosmic war against evil and sin? Or or does the idea of of God both loving us and also sovereignly ordaining our suffering cause all kinds of dissonance for us? As in, well, wait a second, I thought he loved me. So why would he grant me to suffer? That seems unloving, right? Notice, not to Paul, it doesn't. Um, He seems to see his imprisonment as a grace to be shared in. He sees the Philippians suffering as a sign of victory that they've been granted. And this is where the influence of the so-called prosperity gospel does seem particularly relevant. To be honest, um, I I don't lose much sleep. I I don't think that most of you are avid Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick sermon listeners. I just don't think that's true. Um, If you are, we should talk about that. But I am I'm not concerned that we would be influenced by a theology which says God only wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. I, I think our teaching and the culture of our church, it's clear enough, it's, it's biblical enough to keep us away from that. But there is a more subtle view that seems like it could easily creep into our thinking, and that is namely this idea that, sure, God may not want us to be prosperous all the time, but he certainly doesn't ever want us to suffer. I've heard this particularly in in marriage counseling over the years of ministry. I am just so unhappy. I'm suffering in my marriage, and I know God does not want that for me, right? 
Friends, not only is this notion untrue and misleading, it can easily lure us away from the kind of life that is worthy of the gospel. Uh, Does our confidence in God's goodness and power stop as soon as our suffering starts? Are we only confident God's being good to us when our lives seem good to us? As a church, do we gauge success based on what seems to work well in people's eyes? And if so, could it be that we need a bigger view of this God? In particular, a view of God who is both capable of loving us and also granting our suffering for the sake of his son. Uh, This text, I think, also has a way of stretching our views of this world and our relation to it. For instance, do we really believe this world stands condemned before a holy God? Do we really believe that dark spiritual forces are at work in the world we live in today? Do we feel a need to be delivered out of this present evil age, as Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians? Or are we basically at home here on earth uh, without any opponents and not really engaged in a conflict at all? Maybe all this talk about being in a conflict with spiritual opponents that God's going to destroy, maybe this is unsettling to you. Maybe you think, wait a second, I thought God so loved the world. Isn't the world our mission field? Why are we talking about being at war? What are we, right? Well, here again, we need some room for nuance. Um, Sure, on one hand, uh, we don't want to demonize certain people that we really dislike and treat them as our spiritual opponents when they may not be. That's a danger. On the other hand, we also do need a worldview that takes this cosmic war Paul's talking about seriously, uh, as if we do have opponents. There are people who oppose the truth of God's word and the message of the gospel. Uh, As I've said a couple weeks ago, some of you may be afraid of our opponents on the far left uh, who want to redefine gender, marriage, and sexuality and reshape our society around these new definitions until our historic biblical view of these things is either just done away with altogether or at least severely punished. And if marriage between a husband and wife really is a picture of Christ and his church, as Paul says it is, those may just be some opponents of ours. Meanwhile, some of you may be more afraid of our opponents on the far right who only seem to talk about Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, and the church as if they're tools to gain power. Uh, And they want to basically grab their guns in order to keep America Christian again, or still, at all costs, even if it involves incredible compromise or even possibly violence. And if... We are really citizens of this heavenly kingdom more so than we are of the United States of America even. No matter what they may profess to be, they may even be opponents of ours as well. And of course, depending on who we listen to, it's not hard to find many voices that will stoke these fears over and over again to convince us, oh man, those people are really our opponents and we should be terrified of them. Paul's entire point here is this. Don't be afraid of our opponents in anything. 
no matter what kind of persecution, suffering they may inflict. And here's why. It's because all the while, God is in this suffering with us, even granting it himself, church, so that we could win this war. What they intend for evil, our God will use for his ultimate good. He's been doing it since the days of the Old Testament, and so therefore we can rejoice. We can rejoice. So does your doctrine of God and this world and our suffering, does it need to be altered a bit? Uh, Do we need to bring these views of ours more in line with Paul's theology here so that we can truly believe in and embrace this truth with joyful hearts? that it is often God who grants and uses our suffering for his sake. Next, a takeaway is this. Number two, our perseverance together as a church is crucial to God's battle plan. It's crucial. Here I go again, right? It is, after all, though, the church that will prevail over the gates of hell, according to Jesus, a very credible source in Matthew 16. It is, after all, the church which is God's pillar and buttress of truth in the world. If, if, if it doesn't stand firm, the whole thing collapses. It is, after all, the church that God uses to make his wisdom known in all of creation, that's Ephesians 3, including this statement here that he makes to the opponents of his church, that they will be destroyed and his church will be saved all by him. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Here's the point. Persevering in unity as local churches here on earth is not just a good idea. It's not just something we should do to prove that we're all good boys and girls. It is crucial to God's strategy in this war. God is winning this cosmic war through local churches like ours who stand firm in one spirit with one mind and keep striving side by side to trust in Jesus more and more, even in the face of all kinds of terrifying circumstances. So do we really believe that the spiritual health and unity of this church is that important? Do we really believe that? Some of you have kept striving side by side with us through suffering. Uh, Whether it was some kind of external situation in your life or even difficulties, even hardships right here in the life of our church. And as hard as it's been for you, you have not gossiped. You have not grumbled. You have not given up or wandered off, you have stood firm with us in one spirit and with one mind, and I, I really want to thank you for that. I really do. First, uh, it honors God. Uh, it also sends a clear signal that our gospel really is true, true enough even to get us through hard things. Not to mention, it also demonstrates the kind of downward humility that marks this upward gospel-worthy life that Paul is calling us to here. So, Thank you. Thank you for your faith in the Lord Jesus when it's been hard to strive side by side. If you are struggling in the life of our church right now, uh, if Paul's description of this gospel-worthy life does not describe your experience of redemption lately, uh, first, I I hope we can see that this upward life we share, it's not always easy or natural. It, It does involve a kind of striving God's people have always been tempted not to stand firm 
not to keep striving, but I do want you to see that the way we stand firm is, quote, in one spirit with one mind. The way we strive is side by side with our brothers and sisters. So please don't isolate yourself and stew over your irritation or disappointment waiting for someone to spot those things from a distance unprompted to swoop in and address them all. Or, or maybe to not do that and then have an excuse to leave the church. I hardly engaged with anyone for months and no one seemed to notice or try and make it right. That may be a problem. Very open to needing to grow in a lot of those ways, but I also want to ask you to consider it may be that the church is growing, maybe that our summer schedules are, are busy, and it may be that you haven't engaged for a number of months or told anybody why. This is not what it looks like to stand firm or to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Please take the time. Send the email. Pray. Listen well. Sit down in person. Strive with us. Please. For all of us, I think no matter what challenges we face, what situations we're in or roles we're in, I think this has to look like trying to agree with one another. If you're struggling in the life of the church even, something, ask yourself this question. Am I trying to agree here? Not just insisting that our concerns be heard and considered or whispering about disappointments with anyone but the members we're actually disappointed in. Again, take the time, send the email, Sit down in person, stand firm, strive side by side in one spirit with one mind. This stuff really matters. It really matters because our persevering together is an important part of God's battle plan. But again, I want you to notice we're not called to strive side by side towards somebody's visionary strategy or towards some other worldly goal we can all just achieve by trying hard together. No, Paul's calling us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We strive side by side to help one another trust him more and more, no matter what happens, which leads to our final and most important application. King Jesus is in charge. And we can always trust in him. We can always trust in him. We have to. Uh, No matter what opponents we face, or what afflictions they threaten to afflict us with. Friends, Christ has already died. Christ has already risen, and we can be sure Christ will come again. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has promised that he will be with us, friends, to the end of the age. We don't have to fear our earthly opponents because this king we have has told us he has overcome the world. So we can be sure, no matter how much suffering we face, we have every reason to press on in it with joy because our resurrected king endured the ultimate suffering for the joy that was set before him. And now we get to share both, both in his suffering and in his joy. That is our gospel. He is our king This here, our earthly life together, this is our conflict, and we will only live worthy of this gospel to the extent that we rely on the king together.